This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. You're listening to Panel Borders on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. I'm Alex Fitch and this is Resonance's monthly show about comics, graphic novels and sequential art. In today's program, we're looking at comics that depict unusual city dwellers. In the second half of the show, I'll be talking to artist Elise Weaver about her urban graphic novels Big Ugly and Something City, which tell the lives of friends and neighbours in city environments. However, in the first half of today's show, I'm talking to veteran artist Robin Smith about the relaunch of the classic small-press British comic The Bogeyman, a comic that he drew in the 90s at various publishers and is now being collected in a definitive edition which showcases the majority of the bogeyman strips from the start of his narrative that was published by Fat Man Press in 1989 to later strips serialised in Judge Dredd magazine. I'm also talking to Robin about his break into comics as art director of 2000 AD and his interest in drawing a pastiche of Humphrey Bogart's film noirs set in the unlikely location of Glasgow. My interview with Robin was recorded via Zoom, so you'll have to forgive the occasional digital artefact. I guess the reason we're talking is because there is a Kickstarter for the collected edition of The Bogeyman. Um, It's a comic that first started being serialised in 1989, so... Uh, There have been a number of kind of installments of the comic over the years. It's had a number of homes. Um, What sort of happened recently uh, in that it's now come back to press? Uh, Was it you and John wanted to bring it back? Was it the guys at the 77? No, it was um, originally, it was, uh, we've always thought about it. And um, John and Alan and I, sadly, obviously we lost Alan. Mm. John and Alan and I had started thinking about what we could do with it because it's such a long time since it's been in print. And when both John and I have tried to find copies of various albums and things, you can't, I mean, you can pay a lot for one, but you're not going to get one any other way. And we thought Mm. after 30 years, it's probably, yeah, we can give us another run out and things. And it probably is, you know, people are going to enjoy it still. And like I said, over the years, there were a number of kind of different versions of the story. It was uh, serialised in Judge Dredd magazine. It was serialised in Toxic. Um, but I guess this is the largest collection that we've had so far of the majority of the issues. Well, this collection is going to have the original story, which is four issues. Um, then the sequel to that was China 2, which is another four issues. Then we did the 56-page story for Rebellion, mm. which was the Return to Casablanca story. And for this, we're doing um, another six-page new bit to finish off the Casablanca story. So there you go, so we're putting it all together. There was another story, which is the one we decided to leave out, which is the one that went into Toxic, which was set in, uh, in New York and involved Dan Quayle. Well, everybody thinks they're American in America and nobody knows who Dan Quayle is anymore. So we kind of figured it wasn't really, it didn't really work, so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 300 pages is plenty it's it's a sizable amount (laughs) um and you know you mentioned the various places uh it's been published obviously the original run 
uh, from Fat Man Press, which presumably was some kind of self-publishing thing uh, between uh, yourself and John and Alan. Um, was that an attempt to do something in the American comic style? Well, if you went back to the late 80s, people were talking about doing creator-owned comics. Mm. Some of the things that were going to be creator-owned comics have been mega-sized ever since, and they're still not really created. Um, owned as Alan Moore would probably tell you, you know. Um, so we decided to do it ourselves. And um, I, was, I was friends because I, I I'd worked on 2008, so I, knew, I was friends with John and Alan. Mm. And we were up in Glasgow. We used to go up to Glasgow occasionally. And it was coming up to the European City of Culture Year for Glasgow. Mm. And the guys that did the comic, organised the comic marts up there, John McShane, Bob Napier and Pete Root, invited us up. John McShane said his friend, George Jackson, who was a local entrepreneur and very good um, folk musician, mm. um, get some funding. Another one, sadly, sadly has gone as well, George Jackson. Uh, so the original discussion was with me and John McShane says, do you want to do something? And I said, yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to draw Glasgow. But I was, <laughs> we were sort of futuristic Glasgow at that point. And, mm. uh, and then it wasn't really kind of hitting. I was always, um, I spent a lot of time with John and Alan, and because they tried to do a kind of gumshoe detective photo strip before, they were constantly doing the Bogart imitations, which they thought sounded like Bogart, but they were slightly more Scottish, I would say. <laughs> Not as bad as the um, Jockney, which is when they tried to do London, as it was. Um, <laughs> um, so I, it just kind of came, why don't we set that? And they had this idea about somebody that's an escape from an asylum thinks he's Humphrey Bogart. And of course it fits perfectly with wanting to draw Glasgow and they obviously wanted to write a Scottish comics. So mm. it kind of worked like that. So yeah, so that's kind of how it came about. And when you say it came out of a wish of wanting to draw Glasgow, is there something about the city that particularly attracted you, you know, that you really wanted to set something there? Well, I'd gone up to um, Glasgow for the first time. I'd never been up to Scotland until we started going up with um, 2000 AD and we just got up to see mm. the some of the kids up there because obviously there's quite a lot of very enthusiastic comic readers up there and of course it reminded me because i'm from merseyside i was born in port sunlight and of course glasgow is like liverpool but it's like it's like a small version of new in new york isn't it it's the mm. same same kind of architecture it's the same built with the same money it's on a river it's the kind of same thing i just thought it'd be fun to do something set there and things and obviously um obviously john and alan are well aware of that Glasgow's full of kind of rather odd characters mm. and if you think of the things that had gone before slightly that were kind of very good Scottish things there was um Tutti Frutti was good with uh Roy Coltrane then there was things like the boys from the black stuff so it was kind of like a cast of odd characters and it was the perfect place for it really so mm. yeah so hence it ends up in Glasgow and I guess also I mean you know when you're doing uh, a pastiche of Bogart and the various film noir that he appeared in. I think Glasgow has subsequently in recent years doubled for classic American cities in movies that are set in like the 1940s because America no longer looks like that, but bits of the UK do, which I think is fascinating, you know. I think, I've see, I, think I saw a picture of uh, Batman standing on the Liver building not so long ago. So yeah, I think that's a definite thing, isn't it? The only thing I would say Having watched um, the new um, take on Perry Mason, 
one of the things that's really obvious is the Americans have still got all their old cars. Watch mm. any British version of something like that, and you're going, well, that's the one Ford Anglia again. So, you know, it's kind of, <laughs> they are, they're well equipped for that sort of stuff. Indeed. So, yeah. Um, and because, uh, you know, it sort of was a creator-owned comic, um, how much of it was kind of co-created between you and John and Alan? Would you suggest ideas or did they fully script it and give it to you? What was the collaboration like? Well, they had the idea for the, for the lunatic and things. And, mm. But it was kind of like it was, it was pretty well done because I'd say I wanted to draw something and they'd write the thing I wanted to draw in. Mm. So we needed an asylum. So John sent off his sister to um, to photograph the asylum that becomes Bin Vinny and things. You know, it's kind of like, and of course, everybody up there was really helpful. I needed any refs or anything because, of course, because Glasgow being the Euro, uh, having the city of culture, the European city of culture thing, it meant there was some good books on Glasgow architecture and things. So I could choose things to draw that were good fun, and they sort of fitted in, which was which was good. So mm. yeah. Did uh, any Macintosh make it into the comic before it burned down? <laughs> twice, remember. It's burned down twice, isn't it? I can't remember if there's anything in I think there's, is there or is there not? I can't remember, you know. I'd have to look. Uh, maybe it was in the process of burning down at the time. <laughs> I was talking to somebody that went to Glasgow Art College and they can't get over the fact that um, they, can, they can never go back. So, yeah. Yeah. And obviously, you know, some of the kind of uh, the humour of the comic, the surrealism of the comic is uh, the idea of a nutter thinking that he is Bogart in kind of film noir. Um, was that a genre that you were already a fan of or did you do kind of additional research as you were drawing the comic? I think, I think we all grew up with it because I've been talking about this lately. Mm. John, obviously, John was born in America. John and Alan are, well, not now, but John's about 10 years older than I am. So he grew up with cowboys. I grew up with detectives on television. But mm. what we all had in common is we all obviously heard, watched all the film noir because there was a limited amount of stuff on the television in the old days. So when BBC Two started, all they'd show was old movies and it was fantastic. You got to see some great stuff. But this stuff was on all the time. So you could see all the film noir stuff. Um, and... Obviously, I've read Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett, and you know, it's I've read lots of crime fiction as well. So, yeah, so it was perfect for it. Mm. And obviously, you know, at this point, you had already been drawing comics for a decade, but something like 2000 AD um, had slowly but surely become full color, um, while the bogeyman is still black and white. Well, it was going that way, but. I didn't really draw because I actually I was the artist from 2000 maybe from 78 till mm. oh 85. So by the time we go into the bogeyman, things were just evolving out at that point. The colour was just coming in things, but obviously I kind of you can't. It's it was you could still produce a newsprint comic relatively cheaply, mm. and I've never mm. seen anything wrong with black and white comics. I kind of I always I mean I a lot of people think that. If you can do it cheaply, it doesn't matter if it's in black and white, because let's face it, when I was a kid, I'd want to copy comics. Mm. And even if it's an American comic, you can still see the lines and copy it. Whereas if it's superbly painted, you're going, I have not a clue how to do that. And <laughs> nowadays, you look, see if you know how to paint it, and you go, computer-generated graphics, I haven't got a clue how to do You know what I mean? It's like it sort of evolves out and things. So, yeah, so doing it black and white was just perfectly logical. So. Mm. But, I mean, you know, you mentioned obviously now uh, comics are on, you know, slick, full-colour paper. But something with Bogeyman, 
it was obviously beginning to feel like the end of an era. Like you say, you could still do newsprint comics. 2000 AD had been on newsprint for over a decade at this point. Did it change the way that you drew? Do you draw in a different way when you know it's going to be produced on newsprint because maybe it absorbs the ink more as opposed to when you're drawing for an American comic? No, I think you just, um, because it's black and white, it's because you're drawing in black and white and you're not going to have colour, so you use more tone. Mm. Probably put more lines in. I mean, I look at some of it and there's too many lines in. I've spent the last <laughs> weeks taking out some of the lines. So, yeah, so, um, yeah, I think, I think I just thought it, su it suited that to have lots of black in it and things, and it would do us and things. Um, and if the one that we're not reprinting was um, done in full colour, but, of course, it's outlined, I look at that and think, well, it doesn't really work the same way. You know, it's got quite... You know, it's quite pretty, but, you know, I mean, it works both ways. I mean, people can do both things properly, but at that time it seemed sensible to do it like this. Mm. And it wasn't how cheap it was to do it as an independent comic because we only had a colour front and back cover and that was it. I mean, the back cover didn't have any colour on it. It was just printed at the same time. So, yeah. Mm. Um, and so, you know, this new uh, six pages that you're drawing uh for the collected edition it comes um 34 years after the first installment um are we seeing the character age uh throughout the collection or does he stay pretty much the same well no because it runs straight after uh Castle okay that story i mean who knows whether we will see the aged bogeyman at some point it's certainly something john and i have actually discussed briefly but yeah so it's um no so it's basically it just looks like however I drew it at the time, if I'm honest about this, but it does mm. kind of, I think his, um, his character, because I'm obviously reading this again, I've, and I think John and Alan had the character and it, they've just improved it and improved it. It's just got funnier and funnier. Mm. And the amount of his um, disassociation from reality has increased to the point where there's no longer, there's no Francis for Plumy. There's no, there's no mistake. He's the bogey. He thinks he's bogey and that's it. Mm. not any specific you know bogey but <laughs> well that sort of i guess cultural idea of bogart that everyone has a kind of mashup of all of his roles kind of mixed together in their head and this is what kind of what's coming out in the comic yeah absolutely and there's lots of because you obviously always think the um you, you kind of think of the um the detective stuff but there's loads of other stuff as well he made cowboys and he made romances and he made mm. but i think it's anything anything it's, what you got stick it all in there so, yeah. <laughs> but i guess also with the kind of noirish uh aspects of the comic when it first started you know thinking of the comic book artist as director and cinematographer were you in inverted commas uh kind of lighting the art in the bogeyman as if it was more like a film noir compared to the other comics that you drew i think the thing is with comics when you're, you're drawing it from a script it's a bit like you're directing it anyway, because the script, when you, you've, uh, I, I, if you've seen a comic script, it just has scene description and dialogue. Uh, the artist draws it, it goes back to the writer, they sub it, the dialogue against the images again, because obviously it evolves slightly as it goes. Or sometimes you think, well, we can change this bit, or we'll change that bit, or, or um, do it like that. There isn't, if, you, if you're doing six or seven pages of, um, pictures a page you haven't got a lot of time you have not that much space to play with so you just try and get the picture and the dialogue in and make it look as um, effective as possible mm. a nice flash page or something it's great to draw the 
rain coming down like uh, Coney Island car wash, as I think is the, uh, I've just heard John, I don't know if you've seen the video. Um, no, not yet. Well, there's a video for the Kickstarter and John does the voiceover and it's fantastic. <laughs> really good, really good. So yeah, so I can recommend that. Cool. Well, actually, I mean, you know, the I'm I'm looking at the uh, the cover of the very first issue at the moment, um, and with the bogeyman kind of bathed in a kind of uh, a cone of yellow light from a street lamp, he looks as much like The Exorcist uh, as he does actually a film noir character. So I guess there were other kind of cinematic influences going on. It's really funny that because I was thinking of. Um... Uh, I was thinking of You're Never Alone with a Strand, you know, a cigarette advert or something, one of those sort of things. And John, when we came to redo this, and I was talking about doing the cover, and John sort of looked looked around, he actually sent me um, the poster from The Exorcist, because it kind of, that's that's now though, back then it was just a bloke under a streetlight, and it's when he sent me The Exorcist, and I went, oh, that's good, because that's got the gate in it as well, so... Mm which would have been quite fun to do and things, you know, silhouetted gates and things. It's quite, yeah. it's a good post to that, isn't it? So, mm. yeah, I think that's more coincidence. But once you've seen it, you go, I didn't ever realise that before. And I didn't, as I said, till John mm. sent me a picture recently, which um, was very funny. Which um, Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a lot less drawing as well. So, <laughs> With the first issue of The Bogeyman, like I said, you'd been, you'd been drawing comics for a decade at this point. And prior to doing your first Judge Dredd strip, um, you'd been the art editor on 2000 AD. How did that gig come about? Well, I went to art college and um, I wanted to work in comics. I went to art college in Great Yarmouth in Norfolk. Hmm. And I wanted to work in comics. I always wanted to work in comics. And... I would have settled for graphic design or design or advertising or commercial art of some sort of commercial art it would have been called then. Um, and I, there was, used to be a publication called the Artists and Writers Yearbook. I don't know whether it's, it still goes. Uh, I used to go to the library and get a copy, but I got a two-year-out-of-date copy of it. So um, all the bits that became IPC magazines, like Fleetway and a couple of other companies, had amalgamated and actually become IPC. So I'd written to all these people looking for an interview. And of course, all my letters ended up in the King's Reach Tower. Mm. Weirdly, I think a letter of me trying to get an interview arrived after I was already working. So, so I'd already had the job. So yeah. So I moved up and they gave me a job. Um, there was the guy that was the then editor of 2000 AD, a guy called Kelvin Gosnell, gave me the job when I actually went for an interview, he left, Steve McManus became the editor, and Alan Grant became the sub-editor a few weeks later. So, mm. that's how, I mean, I've known Alan for all my working life sort of thing, so yeah. So yeah, that was um, that was obviously, if you're only gonna have one job, that's not <laughs> a bad one to have. No, absolutely. <laughs> but also, I mean, I guess working at, as the art editor, you're seeing all of this art come in for the various strips that are being published in the comic, you can see kind of what's working, what's particularly dynamic. So when it came to doing your first Dread strip, were there any kind of contemporary artists that you felt were inspiring you? Or had you kind of, you know, developed a style that you already thought of as your own? As an art editor, I, I drew quite a lot of, I designed the comic and I did freelance work for it. So I drew strip. 
but only when I could fit it in amongst the rest of the work I did. So basically, I did work. If I had the chance to do freelance work, I would draw a dread or I'd draw some covers. I did quite a lot of covers and things. But then I also ended up, if there was a free gift, like a bubblicious chewing gum cover, I would end up with the short straw on that one. Mm. And at the same time, I used to freelance. Basically, I would work at the comic during the day and freelance at night. Well, and I guess, you know, looking at a number of the covers that you did do, uh, there were often strips that were kind of known as being by other artists, whether it was kind of Ace Trucking Co or um, Rogue Trooper. I guess then you end up doing something that is still recognisably you, but also has a touch of the artist that you're kind of fitting in with. I mean, is that kind of an interesting project in a way that you know that, you know, readers of the comic expect a character to be drawn in a certain style, but at the same time, you don't want it to feel like you're kind of copying someone else? Well, the advantage of 2000 AD was there were so many different styles swapped and things. It didn't matter so much. Obviously, the, the readers had their absolute favourites, but they were younger and they liked the story, they liked the characters, they liked the comic. They weren't so fussed about who was necessarily drawing it, though obviously there's, they have their favourites. And a lot of the things I did usually was to do with Massimo's in Rome, we need a cover next week. Mm. You do a <laughs> cover. And of course, um, recently they, um, Rebellion published a, a couple of supplements to uh, the magazine of the cover designs I did. So I'd usually design the covers for the other artists. And then when there wasn't time or something, I would end up drawing it because the editor would say, can you draw it instead? So, so it was done like that, basically. It was just done by the way it needed to be done at the time. Mm. Remember, mm. it was 52 comics a year, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But also, I mean, you know, in the 80s, it felt like you were kind of everywhere in terms of uh, the numerous kind of iconic titles that we think of in that era. Uh, you worked on The Eagle, you worked for Doctor Who magazine, uh, you worked for Action Force. Was it basically just taking the work that was out there or was it fun, you know, working on loads of different iconic characters and magazines? Well, the thing with the, when I went freelance, I did stuff for 2000, but then the editor of Eagle um, said, did I want to do a regular strip? Mm. Well, John and Alan wrote all those stories. So John and Alan pretty much wrote Eagle under a, a variety of, um, of uh, assumed names. <laughs> F. Martin Handel always been my favourite. I think it was the news agent at the local garage and I can't remember just the F because it sounded good they they wrote all this stuff and it was quite good actually because to go freelance is you think you're going to be able to do it and it's actually to draw a strip every week you suddenly realize you learn a lot and you learn a lot about how much effort goes in and then I think after that I went and worked for Marvel UK so I did some Transformers and Action Force and at the same time, I was doing lots of advertising work, so lots of storyboards and packaging and stuff. So, yeah, it was just kind of working. You do, I'd draw anything that was going, basically. Mm. And you did a fair amount of inking as well. Um, yeah. I mean, again, you know, you, you spoke about having to channel someone like Bellardinelli uh, for doing a cover. When you're inking someone, I guess you also have to be kind of sympathetic to their penciling style. Yeah, um, you do. I, yeah, absolutely. I think... Um, if you're doing full inking, sometimes uh, doing some of the American stuff, it'd just be finishes or whatever, but normally it'd be inking, but it was done in the traditional manner with a, a, you know, with a brush and ink and advice from some of the experts. I mean, I got very good advice from 
Dave Gibbons and Brian and Mickey and Kevin about equipment and pens and brushes. You know what I mean? It was kind of like, um, and in fact, I've got a lot of very redundant skills now and a lot of sable brushes that haven't seen the light of day for a long time. So, yeah. I think people still value, you know, analog art creation, even in this digital world. It takes a lot. You know what? Yes, but there's always that temptation to just go, oh, no, I just stick on that. I'll just do it on the computer instead because it um, <laughs> saves me cleaning the brushes. Or, and there's some, I mean, there's some things that are a relief. To never have to clean out an airbrush again, that was the best thing that Photoshop ever uh, <laughs> did. It, it was, a, yeah, so, yeah, some things that, some things there's no, some things are improved. But I think it's quite nice because... Um, you draw on Fabriano paper. I think Fabriano paper mill started about 1160. You're using wow. a, possibly, you're using a wooden, you know, like an old wood case pencil. And you could be inking it with a, with a Victorian dip pen still, or, you know, sable brush. It's like, it was quite fun, that mixture of things. And even now I would draw and then scan and um, process the stuff on the computer. Mm. And when you actually get to draw something for somebody or something, it's quite, it's a pleasure actually, because it's quite nice to have the, tactile um part of it mm. when you were still drawing uh using old-fashioned tools um how large when you're penciling were you normally working compared to how the art was reproduced about half up generally okay so i've got to say with the bogey manners we're talking about that at the moment the first um let's see the first book was 128 pages the second book was a hundred and 10 pages, I think it is. I can't remember precisely what. All of that only existed as um, physical artwork. So it's mm. kind of, you know, it's about A3 size, I suppose. So okay. fortunately, I had it all. So I've had to go through it all, clean it and scan it and reprocess it because there was no digital version of it, which is, it's taken a while. It took me a lot longer than I expected. It was in pretty good nick, but then you realise that you've got you've got to make it consistent. So you're going to have to square it all up to precise and everything so mm. and then of course you start improving bits and then there's a, a balloon that's fallen off here or there because obviously the balloons were stuck on on patch paper the artwork went on its holidays to america at one point <laughs> uh, where despite um there was a glossary of the scottish terms the editor decided that some of them were too scottish and so changed some of the balloons so when it came back and we were going to do this I had to send John a copy of the American version with this and say, look, I'm going to have to change this, but you're going to have to go through it and spot all the mistakes. So we had to go through that and things, which is quite, was quite odd because some of them were for no apparent reason. So, mm. yeah. Well, so obviously, I mean, the, the Fat Man version was American comic size. When it was in Toxic and Judge Dredd magazine, it would have been more like A4, but presumably all working from the same size of artwork and then depending on the page, it would be slightly reproduced, slightly larger or slightly smaller? No, it's to do with the, it's to do with the format difference between the American. The American stuff was fine, so we stayed mm. in that sort of format. Um, the Rebellion 2000 AD Judge Dredd, format is squatter it's wider and it's shorter so with the last story return to Casablanca I've resized all of that I just basically deconstructed it fortunately because wow. that was the first one that I did scan so I'd scanned it and put it together on the computer but I'd left it uh, it was lettered I'd lettered it and the balloons were on a separate layer so fortunately I could take the balloons off it and redo it 
and in fact were having the um, were having the last one relettered because obviously when it all went back together, were um, it needs to be, yeah, it was easier to reletter it than just try and sort of bodge it. And I mean, when you see reprint that's been changed to format, mm. additional way of doing it is you just chop all the pictures up and you kind of leave the balloons on them and do it and things. But it kind of it doesn't really work for this as well to have it redone, so which is which is good. So Jim Campbell is uh, relettering it at the moment, which is great. Mm, nice. So that, that's nice stuff. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and it's good. The other thing is we got um, on the new stuff. We have got Mike Perkins, who's a popular uh, Marvel and DC comic artist, to do a, a, a variant cover. So he's doing the cover for the hardback, and I've done the cover for the paperback version of it. So. So it's quite nice to get some people involved in it as well, which is good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I was going to say, it's interesting that, you know, when you were doing it originally in the 90s, uh, doing this kind of pastiche of American noir, at the same time you were commissioned by DC to do Green Candles, which felt like it was more actually genuinely an American noir. I mean, did the two kind of feed into each other at all? I think I'd... Um... Because I had done Bogey at that point. No, because I did Green Candles mm. for Andy Health. Because I've been drawing those. They did see Paradox did a series of big books, which are the big books of whatever. They were really yeah. um, I mean, eight pages on Alistair Crowley. I mean, it's a it's an artist's <laughs> dream, isn't it, to to draw? I mean, they were great fun. And because they reprinted the Bogeyman, I was quite friendly with Health and things. So that's how I ended up doing Green Candles. But it didn't really, it didn't really come to anything in the end, um, and I've been, I've looked at it recently. Um, it's because it was like um, John. I think one of the others was John. I can't remember who did. Did John do Road to Perdition or um, no? There was several books done. There. I think John, John's was History of Violence. History of Violence. Thank you. So there were several of those books done, but um, nobody. We never made any money out of them, which is the which is a shame. There's quite a lot of pages. There's three pages of 90 pages each, I think, something like that. Of mm. green so, However, the best thing about it was that DC are very good at returning your artwork. And when they came to return green candles, they lost an entire issue of it. Now, it's not of any much use for me, but DC being kind employers paid me again for it. So they just paid the same fee again. So I always wish they'd lost the other two sets as well. <laughs> But it does mean so if like, there was ever a reprint, you'd have to redraw one issue. <laughs> frank, frankly, I've got enough copies of that. It's never going to be reprinted. If anybody wants it, I'll just give them away. If you want a copy, if you want copies of Green Candles, say so now. There's um, there's a there's a skip waiting for. No, there's too many of them. I've got so many. So yeah. Nice. So actually, the thing I've got the most of, which is really odd, is give me liberty because I coloured that for. Mm. Um, they did that. And Dark Horse are fantastic. Every time they've done a different format, you end up with another few copies of it. And it's suddenly the other day when I realised how many copies of that I've actually got. And it was quite a few. So I'm going through them. Mm. And it's funny, you're, you're not really known as a colourist, but presumably when you were doing those 2000 AD covers back in the day, you were doing the colour as, as well as the artwork. Yeah, I could, I, I could do colour. So... I think the first stories I ever did for 2000 were annual um, stories. So there's a dread, a, a, mm. a rogue trooper and strontium dog. So yeah, everybody wants to play with colour, I think is the, is the thing. And then I did lots of colouring. I did lots of um, 
colouring on um, nursery titles and um, licensed characters and things. So, yeah, coming colouring sort of, you know, it's quite it is quite enjoyable to to go back and do some colouring, provided you don't have to use the airbrush. So. Cool. Um, well, it's been great to talk to you. Um, I hope the Bogeyman Kickstarter does uh, really well and it's good to see it back in print after all this time. Yeah, well, I hope it's doing okay. It's had a really good response. In um, It's been running since Thursday and we had, we've met our first targets pretty well. And the only other thing I need to say about it, which is just coming in at the moment, is one of John's ideas was to sell places mm. in the final new story. And it's great because the people that are buying the places, uh, those, those um, places are great because they're all so far really quite good to draw, which obviously makes it. <laughs> yeah, so that was, yeah. So, so hopefully it's going to work and things, but we'll see. Nice. We'll see. Good fun anyway, so. Because they look like native Glaswegians <laughs> rather than escapees from a lunatic <laughs> asylum. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm not uh, probably best not to go with that because it's a hard. That's always the hard call, isn't it? Really. really. <laughs> um, I don't know what they look. I don't. I don't know how many of them. Even, I, one of them I know is somebody that John knew that used to live up the road from him when he was a kid in Glasgow when he came back from America and things, but which is Greenock or somewhere like that. So, so I don't know. I'm really. I. Yeah, I mean, I know who I've drawn actually in mm. the Bogeyman, and it includes things like um, the Swedish publishers of the Bogeyman. But I don't know what they ever used them, but they're quite distinctive. So I know them <laughs> in the nice. uh, Charlotte Spittery is sitting in a bar at one point because obviously I put there's references into there's posters for Texas and uh, some of the other bands that were sort of popular at the time. So there's quite mm. a kind of renaissance going on. So yeah, so. Interesting. And unlike Dan Quayle, a reference that people are still happy to see today. <laughs> well, that's like, yeah, well, that's somebody said, and this Gordon Rennie has written an introduction. He said, the thing about that is everybody can remember who the bogeyman is and nobody can remember who Dan Quayle is. So <laughs> I mean, the thing is, that was probably before its time, because if you think of the people they could have, American politicians they could have put in, or subsequently, that could have been a, yeah, a far more spectacular, rather than still a man couldn't spell potatoes. I'm sure you could still squeeze Trump in somewhere. <laughs> Do you know what? Uh, there's something there's something vaguely distasteful of that prospect, isn't there? <laughs> I did actually have to, I did put Boris Johnson in something quite recently, and uh, and Cummings is in it as well. But I'm not even going to say what that was. But it wasn't the bogeyman. So so yeah. Nice. So yeah. So it's nice to nice to chat and things. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. A definitive collected edition of the Bogeyman by John Wagner, Alan Grant, and Robin Smith, The Incomplete Case Files, is funding now on Kickstarter. To get a copy of the 280-page collection of The Bogeyman, please donate to this project before Sunday, July the 9th. Various perks include a digital collection, a softback version, a hardback collection, prints of cover art, t-shirts, and much more. And the Bogeyman Kickstarter can be found at tinyurl.com stroke bogey kickstarter. That's tinyurl.com stroke bogey kickstarter. If you're interested in the theme of today's show, which is to say comics set in the urban environment, then why not come along as a punter to the next Graphic Brighton event, which will be taking place at the University of Brighton in September. More imminently, though, 
if you're a comic creator, a researcher, an architect, or student, and are interested in the crossover between comics and architecture, why not submit an abstract to Graphic Brighton in order to be able to present your work in the autumn? If this is of interest, then please go to www.graphicbrighton.wordpress.com where there's more information about the call for papers. The deadline to submit an abstract is the 23rd of June 2023, and the conference takes place on the 22nd and 23rd of September, with confirmed guests including Carrie Franzman, Zara Slattery, Sabah Khan, and Dave Gibbons. So please go to graphicbrighton.wordpress.com to find out more about this event. In the second half of today's show, I'm talking to Elise Weaver about her graphic novel Big Ugly, which is being published this month by Avery Hill. We're also discussing her first graphic novel, Something City, and a commonality between the two books is their investigation of the lives of ordinary people in city environments and how being friends and neighbours cause unusual narratives to bubble up as each graphic novel depicts unusual habits, hobbies and human activities. As with my interview with Robin Smith, my interview with Elise was recorded via Zoom, so you'll have to forgive the occasional digital artefacts. I was just wondering if you if you could talk about how you got into making comics, because obviously if we visit your website, there's an awful lot of your illustration work. But in terms of doing kind of narrative, what's your background into getting into the medium? Um, well, when I was at university, the only thing I focused on was comics. And although I did an illustration course, I was so focused on like comics and zines and had like I kind of felt a little bit rebellious against like being an illustrator so I really was like I want to do comics I want to do zines I want to go to all of the zine festivals and like found like the more self-made stuff the better and um, got really into that so when I left university the first thing I wanted to do was um, publish a book or actually just I, I didn't even think about publishing the book I just wanted to make something that was like a little bit more substantial than a zine and um, it was really the first project I did out of university that had like my own like independent direction. And um, that's how I started making something city. Yeah, and uh, and f actually from like the zines and the comics and the making of something city, that's where I actually managed to come round to the idea of being an illustrator, which is great, I love it. And um, it start the comics really started uh, the ball rolling, and I I mean I think after I published something city I got like a little bit more um, like traffic and like people kind of checking my work out, and it actually like strangely turned into uh, illustration commissions. So it all kind of started from just doing the zines and the comics, which was like a nice organic way to start off. Mm. Well, I mean it's interesting looking at um, something city that you have all of these kind of um, uh, spreads where you basically kind of show uh, the city in an isometric drawing, you know, a section of the city, um, which I guess works as a spot illustration in and of itself. So it's almost like subconsciously you were auditioning for audition, um, illustration work alongside doing sequential work as well. Yeah, totally. Or I think I was also like 
just with that book I was like it felt like it was the first time I got like the chance to kind of like show what I wanted to do and I was like I want everything to be in there I want to do like really full comic pages and then also like these like illustration spread kind of things and I was also like getting into like these more picture book um books at this point and I was kind at this point I was into like a lot of like the no brow stuff and like having like these big spreads I really enjoyed and also I mean you know it, I, I, in a way I'm not surprised that you mention no brow because the way that they approached the color scheme of some of the books the way that they sort of approached uh, the printing of some of their books. I don't know if they ever were actually risograph uh, printed, but certainly the way that both the colour schemes of Something City and Big Ugly uh, seem to be kind of created are from a printmaker's point of view. And I was wondering, is, is that something you have a background in? That's nice that you uh, noticed that because both books are made completely differently. Like Something City I made um, in a kind of like a bit of a bizarre way. I... Um, you know, like acetate, plastic acetate, that's completely see-through. I would um, draw the line drawing and then I would have like five pieces of acetate and I would stick them on top of the line drawing and then I would get black ink or like, I think they black acrylic because it had to be a, it had to lay on top of the acetate without um, reacting strangely. And then like the first color would be like the pink and then the second color would be the blue. And then I would have like all of these like giant A3 acetate sheets. And then I would like scan them in. And then, which is such, like, now I reflect back on it and I'm like, why, why? Like, it, I could have done it so, like, now I work digitally, but that's where it came from. And I think I got that from um, when I was studying at university, um, John McNaught, the print, was a printmaker there. And he um, was teaching us, um, like, lithography and screen printing. And um, that's something that he did. And I really, like, I thought it was, like, super, like, like this like way of bringing traditional print into something digital I, I really loved it but um but when I did um that I was actually traveling around in a van whilst making something city so I was like traveling in this really hot van with these gigantic acetate sheets like thinking it was completely normal <laughs> Well, I, I have to admit, I've never heard of that technique before, but it sounds really fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I have some originals, actually. I should probably dig them out. What do they look like when you hold them up in front of a bright light? They must have some sort of stained glass window thing going on. Interesting. No, they really do. They are like that. But because there's like on every layer, as you layer it up, the black gets pushed back to like a slight grey. So like you can hold them up and you can see what it's going to be. But um, yeah. Yeah, they're fun, actually. Maybe I'll revisit that. <laughs> well, and also, in a way, it's almost like you're taking um, the method of creating an image using layers in Photoshop and then doing it in an analog way, which I think is, is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. But then I but then I took that process and I think like, no, I, I took that process and I did that digitally for Big Ugly, um, which went in some ways a lot faster. And like I def and you had more control. I think that um, I love so how something city turned out, but I really liked that I felt like Big Ugly felt more like controlled, and um, it was like easier to edit, and like it was a lot cleaner and more structured to make in that way. Well, and I mean a commonality between the two projects 
is both the way you look at certain groups of people, how they operate within, I guess, an urban or a suburban environment, but also, you know, generally the colour scheme, the fact that you limit each, uh, in, in something city, it's each kind of section, in Big Ugly, it's every kind of couple of pages, you limit it to a certain colour palette and just use those colours for a length of time and then move on to a different colour scheme. Where, where does that come from? So it looks fantastic. Thank you. No, um, I think like, well, I would choose a scene which had a certain atmosphere. And then if they if I wanted everyone to know that like the atmosphere is now changing, I'd like choose a new color scheme, um, but keep it within the realms of the last color scheme, which is that is, is quite tricky because um, it's easy to let all the colors get away from you and you end up with like a very like kind of hodgepodge color like mess so you have to like really measure it so I would have like five colors and then I would bring like one or two over to the next palette and I would like constantly have them next to each other and um but yeah I think like I did it to guide atmosphere but honestly also to um entertain myself because it's hard to sit on a project um for so long and have one set of colors like for me I really find especially from an illustration background it's nice um to like visually change it up a little bit well and and looking at the um, sketchbooks on your website even the kind of like roughs of your images are done in the same style that you do them fully in color has that always been the way you work yeah actually it, it has I think like um from like I've I mean I've been an illustrator now for maybe like eight years or like out of uni university for like eight to nine years and I find in recent years I've been like simplifying back slightly because I think with time you get like a little bit more confidence not to feel like you have to kind of go like full color and put like everything on the page whereas in the beginning I had this thing where I thought you've got like this really small like space to like uh like capture like um an audience or someone's attention and like you've got to put like everything into it so I would be like super full compositions like a lot of colors which is really fun and like a lot of my work still like kind of is rooted in that but now I kind of feel like I've been doing it for a while and like I think maybe my next book I might simplify down a little bit and I'm becoming more interested in kind of like simple compositions and like graphic design and hopefully that will feed into my work. And in terms of the kind of the subject matter that you've dealt with in both books um, both books deal with kind of relationships between small groups of people and then how um, those relationships have kind of an impact on the greater world. Both books we deal with media as well to a certain extent. In in something city, uh, you have these kind of sections which interrupt. Um, I don't know, maybe two thirds the way through, and then a, a, another third the way through, where you have this kind of spread uh, that looks like some kind of digital newspaper or something. Um, uh, and then in Big Ugly, you know, part of the plot is that one of the characters is going to get an award at a podcast festival. So are you interested in the way that people's lives are kind of represented in the media? In the media? Yeah. Whether it's yeah, them I telling their I own... Hadn't made the, I hadn't made the media connection. Um, I I feel like I always, like, if it's funny that those are just for things that are just in common then, but I always kind of take something as a tool to explore the relationships of the people and like, cause I'm really interested in um, the relationships and like kind of how uh, 
the characters like relate to each other and like I, I love like with storytelling that you kind of like set up a base to explore like the relationships or like the characters and like it happens I guess that they're like based in has these things in common but um I think always my core thing is I want to like uh explore relationships um and obviously moving from something city to big ugly going from a much larger cast of characters where indeed even in something city you have like a little map showing the interconnections between them all uh to big ugly which really only focuses uh kind of like on three characters and in, in a way mainly on two um did it take working on a lot a larger project or or not even a large project a project with a much larger cast of characters to give you the storytelling chops for one of a better phrase to then tell a, a book length story just about a much smaller number of characters I think that is like I think it's a, it was a confidence thing because that was my first book and I think it's so much easier well for me to take like even though something city was in the context of a bigger story with lots of smaller stories in it it's easier to tell a, a small story about like lots of different people than it is to tell a story about like maybe two or three people so I think when I did something city I was like it feels like more like I could control it a little bit better but then with with Big Ugly I was like wow that is actually my first longer story just about um like two people and I really had to consider their relationship and consider like how they uh like the, whereas with something city because it also because it was a, l a little bit more like offbeat in a way there was like spaces just to be like well you don't have to like massively go into that part of it because um it's so short you just have to capture the story and get the story across but with like big ugly there was more pages to kind of mm. get it across yeah yeah yeah, yeah absolutely as your first interviewer I would have previously said I'm sure other people have asked you that but this is a rare occasion where this isn't the case um you know that your kind of close observation of the characters in Big Ugly and in indeed you know the the range of characters in Something City is any of that based on people you've met conversations you've ever heard or indeed stories you've seen in the media that you want to kind of then extrapolate into narratives um, I think with Big Ugly, although it's like definitely not an autobiographical story at all, but I feel like in terms of the age of the characters, I found like myself going through themes of which the characters were going through, which is like brushing against 30 and like trying to organise the what's gone down so far and seeing what's going to happen in the future. And I found a lot of, like, I had a lot in common with the characters. And I have a sibling, and although that story is not my story of the sibling, the uh, I definitely took the opportunity to explore maybe some of the dynamics I have with my brother in the story. So, yeah, I guess, um, yeah, I guess I pulled a lot from, I did pull a lot from my life, but it, not that it was. You haven't been any on any long car journeys uh, with awkward conversations with a girlfriend in the car at the same time then? Actually, the, uh, something really bizarre um, happened. I started Big Ugly three years ago and my um, brother met his now partner maybe like two years in. And like, I guess like the main character, Matt, like has certain qualities that my brother has. 
And then my brother met um, his partner and she had certain qualities that Jill had. And I was like, no, this is so bizarre. Like she's um, a veterinary nurse and they collect um, like spiders and snakes and like, uh, and like ferrets. And I was like, no, there's a lot of crossover and I need to let them know that if they find that there's crossover, it's not personal. <laughs> Funny. Uh, well, as, as long as you don't do your next book about the apocalypse and it turns out that you are a soothsayer, we'll all be all right. <laughs> <laughs> But it's interesting, actually, you know, talking about, you know, her having an interest in uh, collecting weird animals. It, it does feel that one of the kind of leitmotifs as well of your books uh, is kind of like unusual hobbies. So in um, Something City, there's a character who watches uh, Star Trek fan films, which I don't think I've ever seen depicted in the comic before. Uh, there are other characters who are members of uh, a nudist colony. Uh, then in Big Ugly, obviously, you have a character who's a podcaster. I mean, obviously, I can't talk about my own industry. Um, but these are still relatively kind of like niche uh, interests that perhaps haven't been kind of depicted so much in stories. Mm. Yeah, I really, um, I love like... Um like things which are like a little bit offbeat or like I like putting really normal situations but setting them in an unusual environment like with the nudist colony like she was go I can't like honestly I haven't really thought about something city for a while but she was going through some kind of a uh, emotional issue about uh not feeling connected to other people but exploring that within being in a nudist colony like it kind of it takes something that's like it's real that's how we all we all have like those moments but then if you put it in something that feels like a little bit like strange it i think it like it gives like a nice um energy to the the story yeah i mean absolutely um but also i mean i, I guess you know another thing that i find really fascinating about your work is the way that you kind of locate individuals within the built environment you know the way that uh, they will inhabit a space for example that there's this double page spread uh from big ugly which you also sell as a, a print on your website so presumably you did that pretty large to start off with um which which seems as a reader uh that shows that you have a real interest in depicting these spaces in using perhaps some of the traditional tools of architectural drawing like isometric layouts but also bringing more of a kind of illustrator's eye to that kind of spread can you can you talk a little bit about you know constructing those images yeah i mean um i really um it's funny because if you look at a comic page there's so many elements that go into it and like comics are like if you look at it it's like it's like a really complicated illustration and it has to work somehow and if you took all of the borders away and squished it all together you're just left with a really detailed illustration but i also like with the um with the setting of the scenes and the spaces i like to be like i get quite if i'm like okay i'm going to draw someone in a garden center like I do really want to draw them in the garden center and I want to like set the scene. So like when you can like go into it and like, you know where you are a little bit. But also, I mean, I guess as a storyteller, um, observing how people uh, 
operate, for want of a better word, uh, in different spaces, how they'll act when they're in their sitting room, how they'll act when they're in the shop, how they'll act when they buy a swimming pool, which again feels like, you know, I, I, I'm not suggesting you've taken your sketchbook to all of these places, but perhaps there has been some kind of close observation of how people uh, do operate in different environments. No, but that's, no, that's, that's definitely true. I mean, I, um, it's funny because the way I um, like write the dialogues and the way I kind of set up like each scene would really be like um, coming back to what you kind of asked earlier. I would like um, I will like be out and about and I will sometimes like hear something or like I'll reflect on something that's kind of like been said to me. And then I always have this moment of like, you could have said this or like this would have been like a really good thing to say and then you're like having these like little dialogues with yourself and then like I think everyone has these like conversations where you're talking to yourself but you're not and <laughs> um you're like addressing like some unfinished business which you have and then I'd be like oh that would have been a really good thing to say and then I'd kind of like list it like always on like the notes on my iPhone and um then I and then I would be like oh where could that be set and like, so I, like I would choose, I kind of would have the dialogues in my head. I know roughly like what everyone was going to say or what the scene was going to deal with. And then I would choose the scene. Um, and in terms of the way you work now, presumably you're no longer sticking uh, sheets of acetate down on A3 uh, collages. Um, what What is your method, uh, you know, when you do a book like Big Ugly? It's for Big Ugly. It was really different because I actually started it three, three or four years ago. But I um really put it like I would put it down for like a good six months and pick it back up. And by the time you pick it back up, you do find that things like have kind of changed a little bit. But I did just start digitally with it, and um yeah, I would I would start with like just like really traditional like normal had like editorial illustration I would just be like sketching color rough I'd roughly know the I'd roughly know the colors and then I would finalize them but I didn't um like I'm I'm a really efficient illustrator in that I will do things very logically but it's not the same with comics like I I think I like started big ugly in the middle and started fleshing out like scenes on either side and then I would go and finalize them before finishing the script so by the end I like by the end of the process by the end of by the time I got to the end of the script writing I'd already finalized like a quarter of the book and I think I would just do that to sort of like motivate myself through the project a little bit because it's so different um to make a bigger book than it is to work on illustration and I think when you're used to kind of having two weeks deadline and going back into something else, you lose the ability to sit on a project for a really long time. So you have to kind of like dangle like carrots along the way where you're like, okay, I'll finish this page, but then I can go back and color in this other page. And I think next time I make a book, I'm really going to be more efficient and do it the professional way. <laughs> But I mean, it's interesting hearing you that say that you hadn't finished the script while you were still drawing it, because I've always wondered with comics, you know, it's all very well to say I'm going to write the script for 200 pages and then I'm going to draw it or whatever. But there must be occasions where you've drawn the art for a section 
and you realize actually I've set some things up in the art that I haven't really thought about in terms of the story. So actually it'll be useful if I have more space later on to add a bit here or add a bit there. So it feels like a slightly more organic way of working the way that you approach it. No, totally. Like I think if you have kind of an open deadline and you kind of have time to go back and you can think, well, I can make mistakes here and I can go back and like rectify them later, like that's fine. But I, and I know some people really will have the script and then they'll do the first set of drawings and then they'll do the line and then they'll do the color. But I found that that did happen quite a lot. And actually, I think like six months into making the book, I changed the storyline. So I had to then go back and like, I don't know if I should admit this, but like I would have to like rewrite the dialogue over like the heads, the characters would still work, but it would have to like, erase their smile and put like a little frown to change what they were saying that's fine it's like doing a reshoot if for it a movie. Works, it works. <laughs> exactly <laughs> um and, and thinking of you know kind of how your style has changed um you know the way that you draw faces in big ugly seems a lot more kind of like stylized uh than in uh, somewhere in uh, something city does that come from having done various illustration jobs in between that maybe for different clients you've been asked to draw in different styles and so therefore when it comes to your personal project um, it encourages to encourages you to try a different style that you hadn't used before for a longer narrative? Exactly. I think that really was what it was. I think, um, although I think I started Something City quite soon out of university and I didn't really have like a lot of time to sort of find my feet with a little with it a little bit so I used the tools which I had and then and then when the book was finished I went on and developed my illustration style and I've worked with lots of different clients and through that like went through phases of having no faces and then like introducing them back in and feeling more like I think like being feeling playful is really the word for it because I think with something city, I didn't have very much experience and I really wanted to um, kind of do it in the best way I could with the tools that I had. But then with Big Ugly, I had had like maybe four years in between finishing something city where I really did go away and develop the style and feel more playful within that, which is something I wouldn't have felt comfortable doing with something city. And I guess, you know, something you must have always, uh, must have also been a learning experience with the illustration jobs is that certain jobs might need to be done literally on different shapes of paper. So, for example, if we look at your website uh, regarding the work you did with the London Underground for their maps, uh, some of those would be shown on uh, vertical posters, some of them would be used uh, horizontally. Uh, and as someone who's moved from doing a horizontal book to a vertical book, <laughs> I guess, you know, that but the, the two kind of work hand in hand, that you get used to different, literally different page sizes and then working out how do I fit uh, the visual information within that shape. Yeah, totally. It's like composite. I think it's really all anchored in composition. And kind of once you find a way which you can build a composition which works for your work, you can, I really feel like you could do it. For most things like I'm, I'm I think I could do like mosaic tiling and take the lessons and I I mean I wouldn't be able to cement them but I could put them together <laughs> yeah it's really down to composition I think and there's so much co um, crossover with 
comics compositions and because um the way you put the panels on the page is really uh I think it's really important because you can either have something that looks very traditional in the end or you can kind of um bend it a little bit and have something that looks less traditional but then run the risk of maybe it reading less like uh fluently well <laughs> I mean I have to ask did you know the um uh, the landscape format of something city come from you being a fan of reprints of newspaper strips like uh, you know Garfield, or did it come from working in a van that you were literally working in a long thin space? <laughs> I want to say the first one because it sounds cooler, <laughs> but it's not. <laughs> yeah, I think um, actually. So my partner is also a comic artist, and we have this really uh, tiny table in our camper van. And we would split the table in half and I was already taking up so much space on the table. And like, it, we, I really did have like this kind of like uh, landscape proportion and I would take up the whole of the table and do it on there. And I think, um, I think I was definitely influenced by the space that I had. But then again, when I started Something City, I started Stop. the book with, um, the bigger images and then I was like oh I like the landscape uh format I will have to now go and make every comic page in landscape um and thinking of you know how the illustration work relates to your comics I mean obviously some of the clients will have asked for just a single image to illustrate whatever product um they're selling but I think in particular the work you did with London Underground seems to actually feel like uh, almost uh, an appendix to your comics work that again you know it shows little vignettes of people living their lives out in the city rubbing up against each other um, so do you feel it, it, it suits you kind of more when there is an opportunity to fit narrative into a project like that or do you just enjoy every kind of challenge that comes along as an illustrator? I think um, I really do love it when it feels like there's a narrative and like the catching the vignettes, it really is something which I enjoy. And even if the project doesn't necessarily call for that in the brief, I do kind of guide it that way if I can. And um, yeah, so that is like a very, I find it comfortable to work like that. Um, but then like, I also like to get something that's very boring and see kind of what can come out of that. Because a lot of the time you get a brief and they want an illustrator because it's, it's quite dry. So then, and they've chosen me because they like like this like playfulness, which I often hear. So then you get something that feels very dry and you know that your job is to be as playful as possible. And even with that extending, I guess, to something like a bright colour scheme. So, you know, if we go to the um, uh, the section on your website just called line art, the first image that confronts us, you know, is kind of like day glow yellows and oranges. Um, so, again, I guess, you know, thinking of the colour palettes you use can just be something to make uh, an image vibrant if otherwise it may not be as particularly inspiring. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think the thing that I find always the most exciting part of a project is choosing is well, not with with illustration is choosing the colors because you really don't know how or if something's even going to work until you lay the colors down and there's definitely a lot of um shuffling in between different color palettes and uh working them out and I think with Big Ugly that was really um 
something I spent a really long time on in the beginning, kind of laying them out and looking at them next to each other. And I definitely wouldn't have been able to work it out if I hadn't been doing it with the illustration for the last few years. Well, to the extent that something uh, presumably was deliberate and not uh, accidental, um, is that on some of the pages of Big Ugly, you actually have tiny little blobs of colour along the top of the page, almost like you want to show to the readers, here's the colour palette I chose for these, you know, these yeah. this little bit. <laughs> that's, that's, no, that's exactly what it, I liked it, because in the beginning it was there as just my swatch, so I could choose the colours, And but then I was like, no, I'm going to leave it, because it shows that a human made that, and that's really important right now. And I think, like, it's nice to see the human element, and sometimes I've left, like, these kind of um, scanned textures that kind of hang off the page and it's just mm. like I like it as like a little reminder that it's a it's from one person and it's a small thing cool um well it's a pleasure to talk to you I hope Big Ugly is is selling really well it's it's a terrific book and uh yeah lovely that's really nice yeah thank you so much for your time oh well ditto <laughs> Something City and Big Ugly are available to order from Avery Hill. You can find them at averyhillpublishing.bigcartel.com and more info about Elise Weaver's work can be found at elise-weaver.com That's E-L-L-I-C-E-W-E-A-V-E-R.com There's a launch party for Big Ugly at the Jam Bookshop in Hackney, and that's taking place at 6.30pm on the 22nd of June, with an exhibition of art from Big Ugly running from the 22nd of June to the 9th of July. Jam Bookshop, curated by David Ziggy Green, can be found at 61A Hackney Road, E27NK, and their URL is jambookshop.co.uk. This excellent new graphic novel shop is currently featuring an exhibition of the Garbage Pail Kids collectible cards, and that runs until the 18th of June. And on the 28th of June, they also have a comic-making workshop called Stripped Back, which covers the basics of small press comic art making and storytelling. For more info about all Jam events, please go to jambookshop.co.uk. Across town at Gosh, on Great Berwick Street in Soho, they have a couple of signings with the relaunch of the Spider-Man India comic, a character featured in the current Spider-Man animated film, with the first issue of the new run of Spider-Man India being signed by writer Nikesh Shukla on Friday the 16th of June from 7 to 9pm. Then on Friday the 30th of June, Isabel Greenberg will be signing her new graphic novel, The Midnight Babies, and you can meet the author and buy copies of this new children's book at Gosh on Friday the 30th of June from 7 to 9pm. For more info about all Gosh events, please go to goshlondon.com. In Brighton, there's the return of Cartoon County. On the 26th of June, Teresa Robertson will be talking about her comical eye, the British monarchy from Alfred the Great to Charles III, a booklet which tells the stories of the British royalty from 1871 to 2023, which unfolds into a massive poster timed for the latest king's coronation. That's taking place at the Walrus Pub in the Lanes in Brighton 
on June the 26th. And you can find more info at cartooncounty.com. Panel Borders was recorded, edited and introduced by Alex Fitch and is a Panel Borders production. You can find all previous episodes on our blog, www.panelborders.wordpress.com and we'll be back on the first Wednesday in July. Until then, as ever, thanks for listening. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.